variable interest entity. Sounds like a boring term an accountant or lawyer might use. Well, it is an accounting term, but it's anything but boring when you know how it's used in the real world. It's the key to how all Chinese internet companies have structured to go IPO outside of China for the last 20 years. Let's just say it's a bit of a clunky workaround to deal with restrictions on foreign investment in the internet space in China. And despite its clunkiness, it's still going strong today. We'll get into the notorious Alipay, SoftBank, Yahoo story, and others, where the VIE was center stage in that drama. Check it out with our guest Ma Xiaohu, one of the leading early technology lawyers in China, who along with a few others had to come up with all these wonderful structures to enable that first batch of Chinese internet IPOs to happen. I'm your host, Art Dicker, a corporate and technology lawyer based here in Shanghai, and welcome to another episode of Ganbei. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Ganbei, and this podcast edition is also a joint effort with China Business Law Podcast. Today, my guest is Ma Xiaohu. Xiaohu is a partner at Huizhong Law Firm. He's currently in Beijing. Xiaohu was also a partner at Morrison and Forrester there for many years, 25 years in total. He built up the mainland China practice there, and, and I myself am an alumni of, of Morrison and Forrester also in the Beijing office a few years back. Welcome, Xiaohu. Sure. Thank you, Art. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for everybody. Yeah, we are, we are really thrilled to have you on because we're going to talk about a topic called VIEs, variable interest entities, which is sounds like a boring technical topic, but actually it's anything but boring when people understand more what it's used for. It's the really the structuring mechanism that helps Chinese internet companies list go public and list overseas, traditionally in big bigger capital markets like the U.S. on Nasdaq and so forth. Typically, global venture capital funds need to invest in a structure like a Cayman company or other kind of common law jurisdiction where it gives flexible shareholder rights. That's a great structure to do fundraising and then eventually to IPO outside of China. The catch is that in China. To hold the operating permit to run an internet business, which is not basically an ICP permit or other different permits, you need to have a locally owned company more often than not, almost in all cases. And that means that the founders would need to be the owners of the local company that has the operating permit. But if that company were have an offshore parent company outside of China, it would not be able to hold that permit. So the solution is a variable interest entity. In a nutshell, it links through contracts the offshore structure we just talked about with the on onshore local company that holds the operating permit. It allows control these contracts. It allows capturing of the profits from this business. Now for the interesting stuff, Xiaohu, you were there from the beginning when this idea was bouncing around, or some form of this idea. Was bouncing around to get around these rules and limitations on foreign ownership of internet companies in China. Can you walk us through how the, these ideas first started and the, the problems that Chinese founders were facing in structuring their companies to go、uh, for an eventual IPO outside of China? Sure, of course. I think Art, you just gave a very good introduction on what VIE is. It's a little bit complicated if people don't really be familiar with this, but basically VIE is accounting firm. It's, it's sorry, it's accounting concept. So people just use it to to use a phrase to basically 
understand and trying to put things together using short phrase, trying to make people to understand what it is. But while we start to create the structure, there was no such a concept VIE. It's, it's actually, it's really entirely driven by the market, driven by the need of the client. As the internet blooming really started in the US, primarily in California and also East Coast. So it's late, it's, it's in late 90s. And, and in China, basically the, those kind of young, smart people, they first understood the internet concept from US trying to build up the similar model and similar business in China. The typical example is, for example, Sohu.com, Charles Chan, who actually was a student at MIT, as far as I under, understood. And he built up a Sohu actually first in Massachusetts while he was a student there. And those local pioneer, William Ding of 90s, he retired, he resigned from China Telecom and started up his own business, 90s, to incorporate a local company in Guangzhou. So they all started from a different perspective, but all, all try to run the internet business in China. They need a funding as there's, there was no incomes, real cash incomes for those business at that moment. This is driven by the concept that you just do internet and people have a better, better expectation on your future. So they will invest in you. So it's driven by the model in the US and the listing on NASDAQ, all those kind of stuff. So the funding was already available at offshore level at that moment. There was no local VC, no local people understand why they will wish to invest into a company. They don't have a cash income. And so those people do investment in, in the US, including those people in Hong Kong, they will wish to invest into those companies doing the similar business in China, but they need a mechanism to make that work. For example, as said, Sohu was a company incorporated in Massachusetts, how they would be able to operate in China. And NetEase is a Guangzhou local company, how they will be able to raise funding at the international level. So people come to us as lawyers and we were one of the premier in the market and trying to, to introduce the California venture capital model into the market at that moment. So the, the good questions for lawyers are how you will be able to build up a mechanism that will work for both the companies and the investors. Mm. So we will need to go through the PRC regulatory uh, model as well as the international investment model to make that work. And, and then we, we understand they're going to be a offshore holding company, which will be able to get the funding mm -hmm. and also with internationally accepted corporate governance as well as uh, stock option scheme, the ESOP, all, all those kind of concepts, usually people will understand accepted in California, but also you need to have a local company which will be able to work in China. So the gap is actually pretty big and the China government has a lot of restrictions on foreign investment. So basically, although the law was not very clear at that, at that moment back to 98, 99, but we understand it is not be possible for foreign companies directly 
have a Wolfi, have a wholly foreign enterprises and be able to run, to operate such a business. We understand that the WTO negotiation mechanism, China is negotiating with US and a lot of other countries that they will permit 40, 49% for basic telecom and 50% for value-added telecom. That's, that's basically applied to the internet company at that moment. Right. So we understand the, the, the most possibility to set up a joint venture in China is a 50%. And also joint venture, you have to follow the joint venture law and the others and others requirement, which basically be very difficult for the foreign investors to accept if they could already get 50% of the revenue and also subject to the complicated joint venture regulatory environment. So we will need to be creative and make that work. So at that moment, we had a few cases going on. We were, as I said, we were one of the leaders in the market at that moment, trying to explore the possibility. There was no established model, as you know. So we have to work out very carefully with the PRC Council and trying to find a way. So basically, Based upon our understanding of the China regulatory environment, as well as the need of international investors, we believe the possible concept to build it up is we have a kind of internationally accepted offshore structure, and we have a local company owned by the founders of the offshore company. Just make sure their interest is, is, is in the same nexus and then we just build up the bridge. So what's the bridge we believe could go through the technology concept. In other words, we, we will have an onshore entity under the offshore holding company, the Wolfi, which will have all of the technology the internet company will need to operate business in China, which including the technology to build up the website, to maintain the operation of the business, and also daily maintenance supporting, sometimes even including the domain name, all the others, whatever we could imagine. We just put those things together. In other words, all of the IP, all of the funding is available at the offshore structure. We will have an onshore contract between the Wolfie and, and the company who has the license. We call ICP license. Actually, at the very beginning, there was no such ICP license. But whatever it is, you need an onshore entity to, 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 to run the business. So we build up the relationship, go through various contracts, which including five or six contracts created by our lawyers. And we believe that's going to make sure all of the revenues will pass through those contracts and go to the offshore structure. And also, we also have a lot of discussion with, uh, with the auditors trying to have us, trying to put the onshore company, the ICP company into the group, although there's no equity ownership. We, we understand from the content that they don't require uh, strictly equity ownership. What, what they care about is the real control is whether you have the real control on operation and, 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 the, and, the, and the daily uh, maintenance of the company. So that's why we, we set up those corporate structures, 
corporate structures and the contractor relationship to make sure they will be able to uh, fulfill the requirement of the control by the accounting rules. So it is, it is a joint effort and we put the structure in place and there was a lot of discussions. And also we, we will also to make sure this uh, technology arrangement will fulfill the Chinese government demand and the requirement to encourage the advanced technology to be imported into China. So in other words, we, we, we just make it fulfill the requirement that China encourage for foreign investor, you know, foreign investment in such a particular sector. So that's how we, we set up the structure in place. As I mentioned in my article, Art, as you know, this structure was first into place into a company we called GoTrade, which actually we, 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 we got certain financing, we did confidential filing for NASDAQ listing for this company. But unfortunately, this company was not able to be listed to the at NASDAQ due to various reasons. So this company actually is the first company adopt this structure with the effort of me and Mr. Liu at the Commerce Finance, uh, who is a local lawyer. So both of us handled all of the legal work and also there was a accounting firm involved. I think it's, it's a person from the Arthur Anderson, which, uh, which is a accounting firm not exist, but so it's merging mm-hmm. with PwC now. So we, we all work together, in together with the bankers, of course, we, we just put those things together, but bankers, they rely on our uh, judgment at the law and the accounting perspective. So GoTrade actually was the first one. We have uh, the documents in place, and, but GoTrade was not successful. And then, as I mentioned uh, in my article, Helen, one of the bankers who worked for Bear Stern, just left the company, left the, investment bank, she joined the NetEast with the invitation of William Dean at that moment. Helen introduced us to William, and so we will be able to, to be engaged by NetEast. And so we worked together again with Mr. Liu at Commerce Finance. And the, so we, we basically copied the model of, of GoTrade. And legally, I think we believe we are okay, but it is pretty new. And while we trying to put everything together and eventually launch for IPO, the bank, the banks, the bankers, the leading bank was Merrill Lynch at that moment for this, for the 90s IPO. So they, they believe they will need a certain blessing from the Chinese government <laughs> because they will not be able to afford, they did a listing and MII, the Minister of the Information Industry at that moment, home Ofcom, the Minister of Commerce just jump up saying, hey, hey, you guys, this thing is totally illegal under Chinese law. So they, they will not be able to afford such a risk. However, uh, it's not easy to get a blessing uh, from the Chinese government. As if you understand Chinese regulatory environment, it's very difficult for bureaucrats trying to endorse <laughs> anything new, which has no clearly legal structure, uh, legal background in place they will not appreciate clever lawyers' effort. No, uh, not, it's only downside for them, right, to approve something. There's no up. Yeah, because up. because there's the bureaucrats. You, I think worldwide bureaucrats, they are, they are conservative. <laughs> they don't want to take any risk. Unless, unless you are lucky, you meet a very creative and, 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 and also very smart and very knowledgeable bureaucrats, which, which actually we are lucky because at that moment, CSRC 
China Securities Regulatory Commission, just like the SEC in the US, at that moment got a deputy chairman. He used to be a lawyer. Actually, he, I understand he was the first PRC in national, got the New York bar after 49 uh, communists took over China. And uh, he was the premier, sorry, he was the premier uh, to, in the area. He worked for law firm, he worked for banks. And then he, he, was, he was the vice chairman uh, at CSRC at that moment. Uh, in charge of the matter. So we got our bankers, uh, Liu Arfei at uh, Merrill Lynch, maybe Li Xiaoqiang. So both those leading banks at the Merrill Lynch at that moment, leading, leading bankers. So they would be able to access Gao Xiqing because Gao Xiqing used to be a banker at the BOC International in Hong Kong as well. So they, they all knew, they probably knew each other in New York. So they also work together in Hong Kong. So they are all very professionals. They know each other very well, and they will be able to share information to, to be able to have a dialogue uh, mm. in a professional way. That's my understanding, although I didn't involve into that personally. But my understanding is uh, there was some conversations and discussions, and eventually we got a kind of a green light from a CSRC at that moment, which actually was unbelievable was amazing. We didn't get any paper or any law. It just Manderson just 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 and CSRC saying we are okay with with the structure. You can go ahead. While you're having these discussions or these discussions are being had, it who can you mentioned the bankers and lawyers and the accountants and auditors. Can I venture to guess that it was the bankers that first pushed the lawyers and accountants to come up with a, a different structure that would work. and But then shout out to fellow lawyers. It was the lawyers that came up likely with this kind of structure and just asked the, the auditors to sign off on it. Or what was the dynamic yeah. back and forth between the, those groups coming up? So with I, I think our, you are in China longer enough. You will be able to understand this. Bankers, they won't be able to create, create create those structures. So it's really our lawyers. I think if, if you were in New York or in California, in the Western world, if you got lawyers sign off and bankers will feel comfortable, it is okay. And, mm -hmm. and you got you got auditors like Arthur Anderson or PwC sign off the, the auditors. So, so, so the bankers will rely on such an auditing report. They won't be able to, to worry about this. But in China, <laughs> experience the bankers they know if, if you want to do something which is breakthrough you need to get endorsement from the chinese government otherwise mm -hmm. you will take a high risk and regardless what kind of risk factors you will have you will have a problem for example as i mentioned in my articles for the basic telecom industry there was a china foreign structure mm -hmm. for basic telecom that's basically the build-up of China Unicom, which actually one of the leading China telecom companies. Unicom was set up with, with a few licenses issued by MII, but they didn't have any assets. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any funding for telecom, which actually is a capital incentive industry. So how they will be able, be able to build up a network compete with China Telecom, which converted into China Mobile at a later stage. But China Telecom basically controls all of the resources and funding onshore in China. So Unicom has to rely on foreign funding. And, the, and, and uh, as I said, foreign funding in China for Telecom was not a lot. So they built up so-called Zhong Zhong Wai, means the foreign company, they built up a Wolfie. 
in China and use such Wofi to have a contract with 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 China Unicom, and then it's a it's a Zhong Zhong one Zhong is Unicom one Zhong is the Wofi because it's a China incorporated company, and the foreign and Y is foreign is the offshore investor. So they go through the structure about all of the fundings for, for their operations in China, although license entirely is, is in, in Unicom hand. And that's how it works for many years. And a lot of people attending the signing ceremony, senior officials, including West Premier in China. But eventually, while Unicom contemplated the Hong Kong IPO, the state council just told the world this structure is not acceptable from China regulatory <laughs> perspective. Because to be frankly, because this is, and also China, as I said, in the WTO access, China insists on 49%. So if, if not Zhong Zhongwei structure works, so basically all of the, those barriers will be break through. So they won't be able to suck. So that's it. That's happened actually not far away from, from what we proposed this internet structure. And also there was a lot of similar examples while you deal with China, you know, investment. As I said, for example, the Daichi, the, the trust goes through China, Chinese structure, award China investment control, a foreign investment control. So there are, there are different mechanisms. So basically bankers, they would need to have a, to have more assurance than just just lawyers' legal opinions. Right. <laughs> so, it's an interesting point because uh, yes, I, I like likewise. I've been in China for fourteen years now, so I know there's a certain amount of ambiguity that's tolerated here, which in doing things and structures and so forth and regulations, which in other places like maybe the U.S. is just not seen as much. And that mean, also means if you didn't know anything about VIE structures or China regulatory environment, you might just think, why do you have this elaborate kind of uh, song and dance? Why, do you, why does it have to be so complicated if the regulators, as you said, CSRC and others, and, and MII, they know that this structure is out there. And this is, goes till today, 20 years later. They know this structure is out there. Why don't they just change the rules? Is it because... The, you still have the founders uh, as majority shareholders. Yeah, there are, uh, even there in are a, certain, the there are certain structure, or and they're Chinese, or yeah. Why do yeah. you think um, this structure? Is... Are you? I think you are broken up now. <laughs> Sorry, can you hear me? Oh, okay, I can hear you. Yep. I can hear you. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you, you touch on the point. As I mentioned, the CSRC actually, as I said, NetEast was the first company got the structure in place. But not, why NetEast was not the first China internet company using this model to be listed on Nasdaq? As I mentioned in my article, Cena.com at that at that moment was the leading China internet company and much bigger the NetEast and Sohu in terms of revenues. And uh, Sina has been stuck mm -hmm. at the MI for a long time <laughs> because they didn't have a structure to put, to put things together. Mm -hmm. And they hired uh, 
U.S. based venture law group. <laughs> uh, their counsel and venture law group maybe just get a PRC counsel in legal opinions. But but otherwise, this is not just a legal opinion issue. <laughs> and the PRC lawyer just simply give them a legal opinion saying the ICP company owned by a group of Chinese has nothing to do with the offer structure. I think that's correct. And that, that's why they won't be able to, to put things together. But they are the leading company. They're working closely with the, the clinics and stuff. So they stuck there for months. And suddenly they heard, of course, it's confidential legally, but they could heard from the various sources. Not East got a blessing from CSRC. That's really amazing for them. Mm. So basically they just, that's my understanding. They push MI actively involved. MI saying, hey, hey, I'm the regulatory authority. This is not something CSRC can make decision by itself. So that's mm -hmm. why NetEase was required to report everything to MI, which, which actually is very good and uh, very safety process. And so MI got all of our structure, our explanation, and they require us to give them a lot of legal opinions. That's why Mr. Liu was very busy at the moment trying to understand what we are trying to do. I think because we were, we were in value-added area, which is relatively less sensitive. And also, I think we just need a group of real sophisticated or experienced bureaucrats because they know without any mm. leaning, they won't be able to get China this evaluated telecom or even the basic to be developed without foreign funding. So they are not those bureaucrats that are trying to kill you. You just go back to the to the Deng Xiaoping's theory. I don't care you have the yellow cat or black cat. If you catch the mouse, you have the good cat. So that's how Chinese government officials at that moment for foreign investment, they just believe if you could making people achieve the goal and also do not lose the control. And also there's some legal explanation which can safeguard their career. <laughs> Safe <face>. That's okay. <laughs> so actually it's just lucky and also the big environment. So that's why eventually after a few months, MI also endorsed this magazine. So that's why Sina, because Sina has been ready there for a long time. So, so Sina mm. borrowed the entire structure we created for NetEast, and that's why they will be able to list it earlier. So they mm. hired a commerce finance, they got all of all, all our documents. And mm. uh, of course, they also talked with me at, at MOFO, but we couldn't do it due to business conflict and various other reasons. Yeah, so that's why Net, uh, Sina was the first company. Uh, you mentioned why Chinese government didn't challenge us. Because yeah. how do you know? We go through CSRC and IMI. Mm. And, and also, we also meet the good bureaucrats, which actually be very helpful. You also mentioned there are some other areas why there were some problems. I think our, you're right, because, because China regulatory environment is complicated. You, you, have, to be the, you have to understand it. If, if you expanding mm. this structure, which is not endorsed by the applicable regulatory authority, for example, Alipay, if you go to the banking sector, which PBOC, Ampere, 
which actually much, much more sensitive for foreign investment. Mm. If you go to education, which actually much more sensitive to foreign investment. If you go to video, all those kind of, because Xuanfan, you know, propaganda mm -hmm. mechanism, which actually much more complex. So you will face the problem. It's interesting, I'm yeah. Not, some, some regulators are more tolerant than others. MII is relatively, yeah. like you said, they recognize early, maybe not them, but their predecessors as well, recognize that this funding was needed to develop the industry and internet companies and, and businesses. But when you get into banking, it's more sensitive because that's more direct government involvement in that industry. And education, of course, is also deals with content as videos. You have uh, SARFT and other agents, state administration of exactly. radio, film and television, which is, these are much more notoriously difficult agencies to deal with and they're not going to tolerate it. So it all depends who your regulatory agency is, but I could totally, I'm sure you could tell lots of stories about how this model started to expand. It was so tempting for <laughs> investors and founders to say, oh, it works for internet companies. Why can't we do it in banking and education and, and everything else? But did they try to do it and just the regulators didn't step in quick enough? Or how did that, how did it start to expand to other industries before it got resistance? Yeah, it's, it's all driven by the practice art. <laughs> And while you have the business in such a set, regulatory sector, you need to talk with the, the regulatory authority in such an industry and trying to get a blessing. If, if you go to those sensitive areas, such as uh, banking, you know, Alipay, payment, online payment, <clears throat> as I said, CSRC, even CSRC, if you're talking about online brokerage, Mm -hmm. <laughs> if uh, if uh, it's audio video related to SARF, you will, you will get pretty much resistance from the regulators. They say, wait a moment, if I allow you to do our you know barrier for foreign investment, we will not exist. And so that may not work. Even even in the value-added telecom industry, so hard as you know, if uh, US real U.S. companies such as uh, Google. Right. such as Yahoo, they want to build up an internet, this VIE structure, come to China, I will tell them no. Yeah. They will have to go through the joint venture model. So, so I think uh, there's unwritten rules. You have to have Chinese kind of, Chinese is actually, it's right. not a nationality, it's, it's a really, it's not a legal concept, this means if government feel comfortable, if, if they want to have something to ask you to obey their order, you will follow. They will need a Chinese people speak Mandarin with similar background. While they talk about, you will be able to understand. You won't be able to say, hey, I want to give my lawyer talk with you. So, so <laughs> that's not work. So many so, of these unwritten rules have been have been developed over time, but you, the key thing to understand, I think you're, you're hitting on is the Chinese government will tolerate these structures for the development of different industries, but they need to maintain a certain control. And it's not like control that they exercise or even likely to exercise, but it's just the potential for to have those conversations, like you said. And, and of course, in the background, there's always the issue that these structures, VIE structures are a little tenuous, right? And as better than anybody, 
when these companies do go IPO in the risk factors, they have to say, this structure is sub still, even after 20 years, is subject to challenge or potentially. And, and that's a risk factor. Of course, the people investing into the IPO just read right past that or don't read that section at all. But it's a hypothetical risk. And for the regulators, that's good enough. Like you said, as long as the founders are Chinese and they still have some, maybe it's not strict legal control, but it's practical control and, and, and language and just be able to just have those discussions, like you said. Exactly. I think, I think that's how you will read this from a Chinese perspective, mm. to read the Chinese regulatory risk. And also, people may say, if there were such a high risk, why people do this, uh, put substantial amount of yeah. money here, and also why those huge, those giant companies like Alibaba and Tencent still work under this structure. I think, I think that's, that's really the, the vote for the confidence of Chinese government open door policy and, mm. and, 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 and the Chinese track record, even for the, for the, for the Zhong Wai structure, as I mentioned earlier, and Chinese government give, give, Chinese government say, hey, you have to exit <laughs> with the order because the structure is not okay from legal perspective. However, you are compensated you for, for your investment. So my understanding is those investors for Unicom, they got stock options for their investment uh, at, uh, at the Unicom and eventually because Unicom share performed so well, they made substantial amount of return on their investment. <laughs> Although it may not be as good as maintained as a liberty investor, but still they are okay. People are always talking about that the VIE is on its last legs. It's, and nobody can believe that it's lasted this long. Probably those first regulators that you talk to and approve the structure, I'm sure they recognize that other companies like Sina and, down, and others down the road would copy this structure. I'm sure they realized that they were opening the floodgates a little bit, but I'm sure none of them thought that 20 years from now, we'd still be using this structure for listing internet companies outside of China. Yeah. I wonder if they had known that, if, if they had known that in retrospect, do you think they still would have gone with this structure or do you think they would have, would have done something else? As I said, Art, there was no other model available mm. to, mm. to get investors to be able to invest in except uh, this model and also are, that's another kind of too big to fall yeah. understanding that the money and the interest stuck into this model, in particular with the successful of, of China internet companies. Those funding invest into China at the very beginning for internet, just a few billion US dollars, which was not substantial compared with the current China <laughs> market. Although at, at that moment, Back earlier 2000, it was still quite substantial amount of money. And also the return those investors mm. made it was substantial. And then if you go back and, 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 and see the development has caused so successful of the industry and, and, the, and the value of, of the money stuck into the sector, this is too, too big to fall. And nobody dare and be able to challenge this model if there were no meaningful <laughs> solution, in other words, the compensation and the others. So, and also you, you, you have to recognize those investors, they are not only foreign 
real U.S. investors or, or European mm. <laughs> South African investors like Tencent, but actually substantial of those investors, they are real Chinese investors, mm. even including those influential people in Beijing, you know? Mm. So basically people dare to challenge, may not be able to end up very well. <laughs> Capital sure. is yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of skin in the game at that point. Yeah. But it's interesting because you have the Alipay example you mentioned is uh, quite a controversial one, and the story has been told many times before. But people don't necessarily know it's because of the VIE, right? People I would never make that link. But as the audience, some people may know the Alipay case where Jack Ma took the operating company and put it under a new structure, not necessarily disclosing everything to his major investors, Yahoo and SoftBank at the time. And Alipay, of course, back then was smaller than it, it is today, but it was still people saw the potential of it. And the excuse that Jack Ma gave was, or at least the explanation, let's call it that, was that, that the banking regulators, as you said, were giving him hints that they would no longer be happy with, with this open secret VIE structure of, of having still having kind of foreign ownership for something doing these kind of financial traction. We can debate all day whether his Jack Ma's explanation was, was completely honest and full disclosure about all of that and whether there was other options and whether Yahoo and SoftBank were really made whole for that, taking the business out of the Alibaba structure. But it, is it fair to say that people still use that case as an example in your experience, Shahu? They use that case as an example as a slight warning to the risks of use of still using a VIE structure? Of course, I think that's the regulatory risk, as I mentioned at the very beginning. Basically, even for those companies that are established for ICP concept, that works, as I said, that's simply because all it works is because we got some blessing from the Chinese government, although it's a blessing from the applicable regulatory authority such as CSRC and MII. And uh, to be frankly, those blessing is not really a rules of law kind of blessing, which you could imagine because to all those officials who approved the structure retired. <laughs> so, so it's actually, it's a new, new group of people uh, in power. As I said, this may be too big to fall or all the other consideration still maintain such a structure in place. But for Alipay, which is in the online payment uh, mechanism, which, uh, which actually, I think at the very beginning, they put into place with the VIS, VIE structure, this may not be a problem because there was no such a license requirement for the online mm. payment in China while they first built it up. They put it into the structure, I think it's okay. It's just uh, right at the time, and while the PBOC is saying, I already issue license to those people, they are purely wholly, wholly local, lo uh, local owned without mm. any foreign control or ownership. So, so Jack Ma will need to make a choice and whether he will still be the leader of the market with the license or he, he, he is totally excluded from the market or he do have a fresh new company mm. to, to apply for the license. So he made his own choice. I, I don't want to comment, not from a legal perspective, but, 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 but the, he has to make a choice mm. and the people will need to understand it is, a, it is a issue from a no license to a, li to, 
get a license, and you will not be able to blame people while they started from scratch, while there was no such regulatory requirement. And you went to grow up to a certain level and there's a regulatory requirement. So how you'll be able to fulfill it and how, and eventually I think eventually is, is how to, you will be able to treat the board and how you'll be able to, to honor your contractual obligation and the contracts because we are not the people really involved into the details. I think it's unfair for us to comment on this. Uh, and also in general, I think uh, PBOC as a regulator, you, you won't be able to expect there will be tolerance for the VIE structure for, as a general matter. I think, I think Jack Ma made a right decision in terms of the license application, but whether he did the right thing in terms of to deal with the contract he assigned or the others, that's another issue. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that, that, that assessment as well. Of course, much better than me. As at the time, people forget that Yahoo and SoftBank were such large shareholders of Alibaba. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if they had 50%, but combined, they had a lot. And so it's almost getting into those cases you, just, you described before where Google wants to set something up or it, it was such heavy foreign ownership. It was not just a simple... Uh, structure where you had a few venture capital investors, in, foreign venture capital investors in. And I, for sure, that again, like you said, PBOC is not the same as MII and the regulating value-added telecoms. I, I just think that um, maybe, and yes, it was also, as I remember, of course, it was much more of what I read afterwards, that the, the there was no license. And actually, what Alipay was doing was was so innovative that I don't think the regulators wanted to step in and put a lot down a lot of regulatory requirements in the beginning because they didn't know how to regulate it. And also he was breaking up some of the monopolistic behavior of the existing system in a good way and cre creating innovations. So for yeah. all those reasons, I think they probably did look the other way until they realized, wow, this thing is getting really big. <laughs> exactly. Alipay, just from China perspective, they invented this kind of online actually is a mobile payment mm -hmm. mechanism. There was a PoPay in the US, but what Alipay has done is far more than that. Actually, they built up this online and eventually converted into this mobile payment mechanism. It's amazing. It's, a new, it's totally new. It's actually something you really, the business people mm -hmm. build it up as a practical matter and then regulator come and <laughs> catch up and say, hey, hey, I need to regulate this. <laughs> I need to, I need to give you a license. You cannot operate the business without a license. I don't think the PBOC want to kill Alipay, but but they just right. feel it's not acceptable from regulatory perspective. We, we right. allow the foreign company to, to run this business. And let me finish up with a question about what you think is the future of the VIE, because as as we mentioned, it's just recently last year hit its twentieth anniversary. And, and again, nobody thought it would last this long. The other thing that's, in the, that's going on these days more and more is the local capital markets in China are much stronger than they were 20 years ago, where these companies really had to go outside of China to get funding, especially if they're not yet profitable. And now that there's the star market here in, in China, and there's more flexibility as, as that what early stage companies being able to list locally, do you see the VIE still having the same viability and 
having a long life ahead of it? Or do you think that it's eventually going to be wound down and either because companies are going to be listing locally or the structure will have just outlived its usefulness? Or what do you see in store for the future of the VIE? Yeah, I think uh, the, eventually it's still going to be driven by the market. <laughs> in China, everything is driven by the market rather than driven by the regulators. And so, as, as you said, if, if you could get enough local investment and your company will then will be a totally uh, locally owned company and be eligible for Asia listing. Uh, and then an Asia listing mechanism will be, will be improved and be much more user-friendly than it used to be. That's going to be very attractive for people just, just do not adopt the, the offshore structure, uh, and which actually be more difficult to have a local at Asia market. And so actually it's happened. It's happened during the past uh, 10 years. A lot of companies get rid of their NASDAQ or US listing mechanism trying to come back to China and do local listing at the Asian market. And also US has been put into a lot of unfriendly <laughs> policy mm. and regulators and China related companies actually push back those Chinese companies. Unless they, they want to list in Hong Kong, maybe they will still consider to, to be listed in, in China. So it's going to be, and, the, as, and as you said, there is enough cash available, venture capital, PE, investors available in the China local market in terms of, so they're, they're going to be more and more kind of pure China company and without this offshore structure. However, this, to understand China maintains as a part of the global economy player. And, mm. and then, as I said, there are, there are still substantial amount of those investment available for this offshore structure already. So it's not easy just for China to simply get rid of this structure immediately or, or just with magic, just say they, they permit new rules and make this doesn't work. I think the structure will still be there for a while. It's not going to be unique. It's not going to be the the, the only way. So there are going to be different ways and uh, including the local ways. And then if China is going to push more about national treatment for foreign investment, so there may be in the future, they were losing the, the license requirement for Evaluated, they, they will they will be more user friendly in terms of regulatory environment. So there may not be a need for a foreign EMS or to do business in China goes through such a complicated structure. So all those things will while well, people could do a simple one, they won't do the complicated one. So but that's going to take a while, I will say. It's not mm. going to happen overnight. And I think if you ask my judgment, it's going to be there for a while. Although the market is developing, really driven by the regulatory environment and driven by how the China economy and how the China regulatory environment goes. And that makes total sense. It's driven by the market. And, and, and we always, as lawyers, can find structures that that can help fill market demand. And this, we promise this episode is technical in the sense that we're talking about accounting and, and legal structures, but it's anything 
but boring as far if you think about the funding, the capital it opened up for internet companies to grow spectacularly here in China and fuel what now is the biggest e-commerce market in the world and amazing internet companies that people have heard around the world. Shahu, I don't think there's anyone else we could have had on the show to talk about this in such depth and having been there from the beginning of when this was all starting out, there's no one else we could have invited but you to come on and talk about this. So I really appreciate, and I know our audience will appreciate as well, all of the wisdom you've shared with us today. Sure, thank you for the invitation. Be happy to share my experience in China. Actually, it's just like me. It's amazing for me as a Chinese lawyer, for working for US firm, serving for those international but China-based companies. It's all amazing. It's all, it's all the kind of the historical experience. <laughs> Absolutely, but very relevant even still till today. And and Shahu, if anyone is curious, loves these uh, the listening to this episode, how is the best way to if someone wants to reach out to you, just say hello, say thanks, follow up on maybe even some business, for example. Is, uh, is LinkedIn the best way to, con to for people to reach out to you? Yeah, I think it's the best way probably just, just send me an email. If, if you could put my pin in, <laughs> Xiaohuma. Okay. And uh, I have an email, Xiaohuma at gmail.com. That, that's me. Okay. So you or anybody can send me an email, go through, go through the Gmail account. I think that's probably the easiest way. LinkedIn is okay, okay, but I'm not an active user. <laughs> yeah, no, not everybody uses it the same, the same, to the same degree. Absolutely. Okay, that works. And, oh, uh, people and, can, can send me an email go through my Huizhong account, HuizhongLaw.com. Okay.马小虎，马小虎，HuizhongLaw.com. Okay. It's a Chinese way. Last name okay. first, and the Gmail one is the is the U.S. way. Xiaohuma.com. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. okay. Thanks for, for sharing that. And thanks for sharing everything, uh, your experiences today, Shahu. Great conversation. Thank you. It's a, it's okay. a pleasure to talk with you, Har. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>